everyone. Welcome to another week of Antidote Stories in Medicine. I am your host, Christine. It is so great to be back here with everyone. I am going to do more housekeeping at the front, and I'm so sorry to do this. I'm trying to get a little bit better. But thank you to everyone that has been donating for Dan's stair climb. We are trying to get him a little bit closer to his goal of $1,800 for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. For those of you that are not caught up, Dan was in our episode, Why We Do It. He's going to be climbing 69 flights of stairs at the Columbia Center in Seattle, Washington. He has a below-the-knee amputation on the left, and he has had to regrow part of his leg on the right. So he's doing 69 flights of stairs, missing part of his leg. He's doing it on air, and I certainly could not do that. Oh, and it's also wearing turnout gear with like 50 pounds of stuff. So it's really incredible. It's for a great cause. I donated $100. If you guys listening to the podcast, if you match what I donated all together, I will donate another 50 bucks. So head on over to our Facebook page. I posted the link there and just comment podcast or antidotes in your name somewhere. So I know that it's you, then we can get to that $100 match and I can donate some more. It would mean a lot to me and it would go to a great cause of helping leukemia and lymphoma research, also helping out Dan, who's just a great guy and he's doing some really incredible stuff. Also, thank you to everyone that's been reaching out on social media. Thank you to everyone that's been leaving reviews. The reviews really help the podcast grow and it really helps us get into the charts so more people can find out about us. And that way I can connect with more people across the world to bring you really good stories. Because when someone messages me on on social media, I'll talk to them and say, hey, do you work in healthcare? Do you have great stories? Do you want to come on and talk to me about what you do in your your life? So the more we can get exposure and the more we can share the podcast, the more stories I can bring you and just these random connections like me end up talking to Dan. That's how they come about. So leave us some reviews, share the podcast. It really helps. All right. Housekeeping stuff aside, now let's get to some really good stories. So this week, is I always say this, <laughs> I always say I'm really excited that I'm going to talk to somebody, but this week is an old friend. My guest this week, I think we met in second grade, maybe? Probably. Yeah. I was trying to remember that too. I think it was a long time ago. <laughs> it was a couple of years. <laughs> Hi, Anna. Hi. <laughs> Anna is a nurse practitioner as well. And we met way, way back in elementary school before either of us knew what we wanted to do in the world or really probably knew what a nurse practitioner was, but you are also a nurse practitioner. Yes, I am. I had talked about this before on a couple of episodes, but we now have kind of an international audience. We've been downloaded on every continent except for Antarctica. I mean, what the hell, Antarctica? Step up your game. But (laughs) so people that are outside the United States, nurse practitioners, we work more in the clinician role as far as like physicians. And physicians will probably uh, ruffle their feathers a little bit to say that we are like like them. But we work as in we diagnose, we prescribe medications, we do procedures. In where I work in DC, we have full practice autonomy. I don't have to work under a physician's license. We work very similarly to the the physician role as opposed to like a bedside nursing role that people would expect. We are graduate trained nurses. And I was actually talking to uh so my Anna, you met Matthias. My brother in law is Danish. Oh yeah. Yeah. So sweet. And so he had a friend over for Thanksgiving from Denmark. And 
working in DC, I have so many international patients. So I'm really used to explaining like, this is what I do. This is what a nurse practitioner is. Like I'm now your primary care provider and they've never had nurse practitioners before. And so I was explaining to his friend who's Danish and she actually works as like a biomedical engineer. She works on CAT scans, I think. And so I was explaining to what the role was and what I do. And we were talking about medical education in Denmark and physicians over there do like a four-year undergraduate focused on medicine and then have a two-year medical degree, which they call like a medical master's. And then they get their doctorate after four years of like residency. And I was like, oh, they spend six years in school and then they go on to residency. That sounds familiar. (laughs) Familiar. And I'm not in any way comparing the nurse practitioner education to a Danish physician's education. I'm sure it's very different. But the big critique that the American Medical Association and certain physicians have of nurse practitioners is, well, you didn't do four years of undergrad and then four years of medical school and then residency. And and sure, the training programs are very different. And there is a much, there's a much different training model for physicians versus nurse practitioners. A lot of times they tout that, well, you had two years less of school. And it's like, well, in Europe, they have two years less of school and you know, you still call them doctor. And it's just an interesting point, I'm going to say here. It is. I, I have a really hard time trying to explain this to even my own family of what a nurse practitioner is. I, I go through this with them all the time. And, you know, I don't pretend to be a doctor because I do think there is a major difference in our levels of education. And I have nothing but respect for all the doctors I've ever worked with. And I, I get our roles are different. But yeah, the way you explained it is there's more similarities of a nurse practitioner and a doctor than there are of a, a nurse practitioner to like bedside nursing. There's a really yeah. big difference between those two things. Yeah. And there's a and the differences between nurse practitioners and doctors come from kind of the way that we approach care and the way that we approach patient education and and I think and certain patients seek us out because the way that we have developed our models of care and they like it better. Certain patients like nurse practitioners better. Certain patients certainly like physicians better. And it's just really great for people to have those options of care. And I'm I'm all for nurse practitioner fellowships and nurse practitioner residencies, and they're starting to become a thing. And I think they're really great. And I'm all about collaborative practice and I mean, I I have this amazing MD that I work with who he was board certified the year that I was born. I mean, there's no way I could ever compete with his level of knowledge. And I I plop myself down in one of the chairs in his office and I'm multiple times a day and I'm like, yo, Dr. G, what, like, what do you think about this? Like, I I don't even know. And he's just like, oh, that's a good case, Christine. Let's talk about it. And it's, it's the best. Like collaborating is just the best. It's- right. And, and you come from a state, like you said, with independent practice. But I think what the role of nurse practitioners is we're all taught to know our limits and when we need to yeah. consult with a physician. And I think we all do that all day long. <laughs> um, I, I don't know anybody yeah. that doesn't do that. So I think that's yeah, and I know too. Yeah. And I know physicians that do that because right. there's also that same doctor, he'll come in and for certain things that he knows that I've had experience with, whether it's like addiction medicine or having been in the military with this, he was actually a Navy doc, but he was a Navy doc in the, you know, in the eighties. And so he doesn't know this younger generation of, of veterans. And he'll be like, Hey, you know, I heard them talking about the burn pits. What do you know about that? Or, you know, what do you know about medical problems that veterans from these wars are having? And I'll go, Oh, well, when I was in the army, 
we were talking about these complications and he goes, oh, that's great. Thanks. That helps me treat my patients better. And we're working together to help people. And, and that's, that's collaboration regardless of your degree. And if anyone wants to know, we're kind of getting a little bit off on why Anna's here and why I want to talk to her. But if anyone wants to know more about nurse practitioners, there's, I mean, there's not a lot of nurse practitioner podcasts. There's a lot of great medical education podcasts, but there's actually, um, one by nurse practitioners called Just Some Podcasts. And they're really nice. There's some ER nurse practitioners. It's called Just Some Podcasts. So look them up. And if you want to learn more about APRNs, the advanced practice nurses and their role and everything, and they kind of go into more of like what we do as opposed to just stories and stuff. But it's a really interesting role. and I love my job, but I have to do a lot of explaining. And sometimes I forget that people don't know what I am. <laughs> no, I have that experience on like on a regular basis. I'll be with patients and, you know, I'll get to the end of the conversation and I will have just gone through everything you do in an appointment. And then they, they ask, so, so when is the doctor coming? And I think, yeah. oh my goodness, what, what did we just talk about? What did we just do? And then, yep. you know, I have to balance, uh, do I go get the doctor? Do I explain my role? How does this work? So it can be, can be tough. Yeah. Uh, we have a lot of work and doing podcasts like this. And the one that you just mentioned is a good idea to help people understand this role and what we do and how much we can do. Yeah. I, I, I get that a lot too, especially with the older people. Like, and uh, I have a male medical assistant. He's really young. He's just out of college and he's like my medical assistant to get experience before he wants to go to grad school. And people think he's a doctor and they go, is the doctor coming back in? I go, no, he's, he's not the doctor. I'm the nurse practitioner. It's like, oh, you're the nurse and he's the doctor. Cause I I'm young, but I also look like I'm, you know, 18. <laughs> he's very tall. And it's just like, no, just because he's a, just because he's got a penis doesn't mean he's a doctor. And right. <laughs> yeah. And then I tell him that and he's so sweet and he's like, oh my God, no, I don't even know what Toberol does. <laughs> and when I started as a nurse practitioner, I mean, I think I also have a young look, you know, we're both female. I was also pregnant when I started and it was just like three barriers to having people take you seriously as a provider. I think female, pregnant and looking young are really difficult. Yeah. So you just have to prove it with your knowledge and the way that you approach people. Yeah. And a lot of confidence. Right. And we're both blonde. And I think that... <laughs> Yeah, people just you're young and blonde and people are like you don't know what you're talking about. But you're actually a pretty badass nurse from your history of what you did as a bedside nurse. So that's and you're you have a pretty interesting career and a really important role as a nurse practitioner now. You work as a hospice nurse practitioner. I do. Yes. And it's been it's a, been a journey to get there. I've done a lot of different things on my way. I've definitely been a nurse longer than I've been a nurse practitioner. So I, my nursing roots are where I came from. and It's what I love doing, but I also love being a nurse practitioner. It's been really great. I remember when we were like going through college and just after college, we're the only kind of medical people in our close friends group. And we're really lucky to have friends that we knew from elementary school that we still are in contact with, but you and I are the only medical people. So I was working in EMS and having all these crazy stories and everything. And of course I tell my party stories of the like snake story, but you don't tell the gory stories, the really upsetting ones to your friends, but you were an ICU nurse. And so I, you and I would sometimes be like, oh man, this happened. And like just having someone that could relate and that you could like share with as a friend was like, it was so valuable. And we would talk about cases on occasion and you're like, oh my God, someone gets it. 
<laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, you've got it. <laughs> and it's so much better to understand. But I still think the snake story is one of the best ones I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, probably not a lot of reptiles in the ICU, though. <laughs> Definitely not. Although you never know. It's, it's you, know, you talk a lot about the dangers of being out there. And, you know, I definitely have grown my career in this hospital type setting where there are definitely not the same type of dangers you have, but people bring some of it in sometimes and you have to, you know, still be aware of guns and knives and those types of things. But uh, definitely I've never seen a reptile in the hospital. (laughs) Well, I was right when I told her that snakes are not allowed in hospitals. (laughs) (laughs) You hope. Yes. (laughs) I hope to never do that. So tell everyone about being, you worked in a major ICU in the Northeast. So tell everyone what that was like. What part of being in the ICU made you go, I want to go now work in hospice? Yeah, well, I think it's been like a big cumulative event of, of things that I've been through in my nursing career. Because I did, I've done actually even more years in, in med surge nursing than ICU. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of those years kind of taught me how to be a nurse. And I think in one of your recent episodes I was listening to, you talked about, you know, how hard med search nursing is. And that is so true. So true. But for whatever reason, I applied to go into the ICU as well. And I, I transferred over there and you get a long training. And it's, you know, you start out there. And I think you have talked a lot about it, too, where you're just you get excited, not at the expense of somebody's illness or or issues that are going on, but to learn about how to help them and how to treat them. And, and definitely in the first years of being in the unit, that's how I felt. You know, you're, you're learning so much and you're, you feel that you're really helping people. And there are, don't get me wrong, there's many cases where you are helping people. And I have lots of good stories because I think one of the differences between working in the hospital and in EMS is sometimes I do get the follow-up and I do know how the story ends. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not good. Yeah. And sometimes the one that, that you think is going to go well doesn't. And the one that you think has gone bad goes well. And it's really unpredictable. Yeah. But I also saw a lot of bad. And I think that's sort of what, what brought me into the hospice was, was seeing how cases were handled medically. And before I talk about any stories, I definitely want to say, you know, I'm not blaming patients. I'm not blaming their families for what happened. But I put blame on the medical community for not doing a good enough job of, of talking with patients and their families yeah. about the severity of their illness. Yeah. And it's something all of us can work on as providers. I think whenever there's a poor outcome or families are making not the best decisions, it is an opportunity for us as providers to provide better education. And a lot of these things stem from we need better education from the medical community. Of course, there's going to be those patients that are just not going to listen. They're going to do whatever they want. But a lot of times you, you they just need guidance and things decisions are made out of fear and out of love because they want to do the best for their family member, but they don't understand what that is. And that's, that's our role is to provide that guidance and to provide that education. And sometimes we don't step up and take the time to provide it as well as we should. And and you can have some unintended consequences of suffering. So yeah, it's it's, it's a really hard position to be in. It is. And it's not easy to talk about. Like I, I've 
found I have a hard time even talking to my own family about it, even though it's the field that I work in. Yeah. But it's just not easy. But I've also seen in the hospital setting, you know, a patient comes in from the emergency room up to the intensive care unit and you know where it's going. You know that it's going to go bad quickly. And the intern, the medical intern or resident come in and really quickly say, do you want us to do everything? And the patient's struggling and they just say, Yes, because of course they want everything done. When you hear everything, you think there's something that can be done to make me better. Right. That's not always true. And I think when people think about stopping everything, they're not thinking about what can be done to improve their quality of life at the time and to make sure that they're more comfortable for whatever time that they have left. Yeah. And so we talked at the end of Dan's episode about Dan had mentioned, you know, We're seeing people with horrific injuries on the battlefield. You know, do we do everything we can to save them? And and he said, yes, do everything you can because you never know what they're going to have. And it's very different in his situation where you have someone that's a healthy soldier and maybe they have a lot of burns and they're missing legs and let them make the decisions of do they want to live without any limbs. You're talking in this moment about stroke victims that are elderly. We're talking about cardiac arrests of the elderly. We're talking about people that have lived, I I guess, longer lives, or these are people that are suffering like neurological damage. And it's a different situation that we're talking about this medical ethics for. I want to kind of be a little bit clear on that. Yeah, that's a really good point because I was listening to that episode and I was thinking, yes, of course, in trauma, you do everything. And I should also clarify the type of unit that I worked in was a a medical unit, a medical intensive care unit. So we weren't getting the trauma patients. We were getting patients that had, you know, they might be over 90 years old coming in after some sort of big infection or a stroke, like you said, multiple different medical diagnoses so that their underlying health was poor and then something else happens on top of it. I'm not talking, you know, of course, when you get your 30-year-old patient that comes in with some sort of new medical diagnosis or trauma, yeah, we do everything. Oh my goodness, yes. And that's, that's what should be done. And it's not that every patient should make the decision to not go and do, you know, all of the the treatments that are available, but it's that we need to do a better job of of talking to people about it and knowing what they want and talking to patients. Yeah, I think we should have these conversations now. You know, we're in our 30s. Have these conversations now with your family members. I mean, I certainly have. (laughs) I've had these conversations with my boyfriend and he's he's not a medical person (laughs) and he's like... Uncomfortable, and I'm like, fine. I don't care if it's uncomfortable for you. I want to be comfortable when I die. If these certain things happen, this is what I want. And and in grad school, they made us fill out this five wishes document. Which, if anyone is curious about end of life planning and stuff, go look up the five wishes document. It's really great. It helps you figure out what decisions you should be making, what questions you should be asking. But they made us do this in grad school. And actually, they made us do it twice. And it was really interesting because we had to do it. I did like an accelerated nurse practitioner program, a uh, direct entry. So I, I did a nursing degree and then I went back and did a master's, like kind of all in one. And so I did it first for the nursing part and then again for the NP part. And so when I did it the first time, I had my opinions and I was thinking more towards the end of the life. And then at the end of my last year of grad school, the army was telling me that I was deploying to Afghanistan, uh, basically like in my last semester. So they're like, yep, you're going to be going to Kabul for a year and a half, leaving in March. And I'm like, but I graduate in May. They're like, 
too fucking bad. It ended up not happening. I, I got to graduate. But so I rewrote the document the second time with the view of if I got injured in Afghanistan. And it was really interesting to write it from a different perspective because I was writing it as if I was a healthy young adult suffering trauma. And those wishes were totally different than if I was a 90-year-old lady that had heart failure and had had a stroke and everything like that. So it's really good to have these conversations when you're young and you can look into things and make these decisions and, and have the conversations with loved ones so that there's no surprises when you're you know in these moments. It's so important. And I see it like every day where I work in a, a hospice facility. A lot of the patients aren't able to make their needs known anymore. And it's their families uh, that are making the decisions at that point. And the families who have had these talks and discussions with their loved ones, not that it's a happy situation at all, but they're, they almost sigh a little bit of relief when they know what they want. And, and the feelings that people have when they haven't had these discussions are really challenging. You know, there's a lot of guilt and distress and not knowing what somebody wanted. And these conversations, they're not easy to just bring up at the dinner table, but you got to do it every once in a while to make sure you know what somebody wants. Mm. I think there's a good book out there called Being Mortal. I don't know if you've ever read it, but Togawande. And he talks about it and just thinking about what people want, you know, not saying that there's a right or a wrong answer, but just knowing is important. Yeah. And talking about death is hard, but being able to give your loved ones guidance so that you're not putting the burden of decision-making on them is a big comfort to them. And it should be a comfort to you that it's, a, it's kind of a gift that you can give them in your last moments because you don't want to put that on somebody else. No. You know, I don't, I don't want to make anybody have to make those decisions for me. Also, I'm a control freak. <laughs> I want, I want it my way. I'm the same way. Like when I, I mean, so I had a child a year ago and before I went into the labor and delivery facility, I wouldn't go until I had a signed and completed healthcare proxy form to make sure that <laughs> I had a nurse in charge of making decisions in case something happened. So, I mean, maybe that's a little extreme, but I think it's a good thing to know it's appropriate. You never know when something's going to happen and you want to make sure the person that you've had these conversations with and knows your wishes is going to be the person that does at that time. I mean, think of the last person on the planet that you would want in your family making those wishes for you. And then that's your motivation to make sure you have everything in line because, I know there are certain family members that I would never, ever want making my healthcare decisions for me. That's my right. mission to make sure that it's somebody else. <laughs> it's very true. And, you know, I, I have a lot of trust in a lot of my family members. But on the other side of it, I've definitely been taking care of a patient who can't make these decisions anymore. And I've seen families, you know, rip up their DNR or, you know, a different family comes in who might not have been involved in their life for three or five years or 40 years. And suddenly they're making these decisions. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, uh, what is happening? Is this really what this person would have wanted? Yeah. I don't always know. Yeah. So any any good stories that you want to share? I definitely have a lot of stories. Um, it's it's hard to you know think about all of them because of course they're not like the happiest, funniest stories. I know that we're always going for something funny on this podcast, um, so I struggle to find something with a little humor. But this is not a comedy podcast. I I thought I was starting a comedy podcast. Yeah, and that that didn't happen. Um, which is fine. Yeah. I think it's 
really important and really great to talk about those big stories. So you mentioned some cases where family members were like ripping up DNRs and just showing up out of nowhere. Any particular cases that come to mind or anything? Um, so yeah, there's definitely stories that I have where, where family members do those sorts of things. And it's not, you know, it's not the family member's fault. Again, I say educating from the medical provider is what's important. And I think what gets lost in a lot of these cases. One example, I guess, would be this patient we had who, I honestly can't even remember what this patient's medical diagnosis was, but she was very critically ill. She had been intubated, meaning that there is a tube that is... There's a tube breathing for her. and Yeah, yeah, tube breathing for her. She's hooked to a ventilator. Uh, she was requiring very high ventilator settings. On top of that, I, I believe she had a, a really severe infection. The word for the type of infection she had is sepsis. Yes. And her blood pressure was very low uh, because of that type of infection. And to treat her blood pressure, she was on four different medications called pressors at the, the highest doses possible to maintain her blood pressure. And even with those medications, her blood pressure was low. Which is so funny. I treat high blood pressure all the time. And yeah. people are like freaking out about their high blood pressure. And, it, and that's important. We want to make sure that your blood pressure is not high. But low blood pressure is way more dangerous acutely. Yeah. I'm talking like blood pressures yeah. that were down. The, the top number, the systolic blood pressure was in the 60s yeah. on these four medications at their highest doses. That's so we knew this patient was, was really sick, very sick and that her time was very short despite everything we did because there are only so many medications and interventions you can do for somebody while you're waiting for things like antibiotics to kick in. And we were doing all those things, but sometimes there just isn't enough that you can do. But meanwhile, this patient had a very large family. They were from the city. And I, I can't even remember all of the people, but I do remember the particular person who came in and was threatening to bring in a gun if we didn't do everything for this patient. Oh my God. So we were obviously doing everything, but that it's just these sort of things happen. And it's someone makes a comment like that, and you, you don't even know exactly what to do. You're just trying to take care of the patient. And, and you've described situations where, you know, when you're taking care of a patient who's just sick, you're sweating, you, you are, you know, you're not in your best place, but you are focused on that patient. Right. You know exactly what's happening. I mean, with this patient, there was pretty much always at least two nurses, a doctor, a respiratory therapist. Everybody was in the room when someone is this sick. Yeah. Um, and you work as a team to try and help them. And I just remember as things were, you, you could tell this patient had minutes. There was fortunately one of the doctors, the I think the attending finally came in and, and sat down with the family and said, now, we can keep all these medications going, but CPR would not be indicated at this time. Fortunately, the family at that point started to hear what we were saying and saw what we meant because you could see the monitor and the numbers going down in terms of her blood pressure. And and she she did. She ended up dying. And fortunately, we didn't end up having to do anything like CPR. But you know, when you're threatened by a gun and you're trying to help this poor patient and make sure the family understands what's happening, it's it's a little scary and unnerving, but yeah, tempers are high and people are all over the map. And and that's not, you know, it's a city hospital. So people do have guns, they bring them in. Um, there was just that shooting uh, last yeah. week in Chicago. Yeah. Right. But yeah, I know you've, you've talked about this on other episodes too, the violence against nurses and 
other medical professionals is it's out there and it's real and you never really know what someone's doing. Yeah, you don't. And you think someone kind of quipped on Twitter that they used to think people bringing guns into hospitals on shows like House and Grey's Anatomy were tropes of nighttime television. They're not. They're real. And when you're dealing with a critically injured person, even in an ICU, I, I don't understand the logical fallacy that people are coming up with of, oh, I'm going to threaten the people that are trying to help them. It's Yeah. And I mean, obviously we had security around to, to make sure everything was okay and they were really helpful. I don't even think it turned out that there was a gun, but people, yeah. people feel so passionately that we should be able to fix everybody and everything, but sometimes you truly, you can't. That's like, the biggest thing. We were really doing everything. Yeah. And this patient is not somebody who would have survived if we had done CPR, which which brings me to another story where we did end up doing everything for this this patient. We had a guy and he was an older gentleman who had widely metastatic cancer. Mm. Um, I think it was lung cancer. I can't remember all the details. It was a, a while back, but he, you know, as a nurse, you're you're always watching the monitor and the heart rhythm and the blood pressure and the oxygen levels, <laughs> and you're taking care of them, and you're doing a few things all at once. You're and, doing everything. Yeah. And in the ICU, I, this wasn't even the patient that I was taking care of, but you're still watching everybody else's patients too, because you know it's a team, and you're really working as a team all the time. Yeah. So we're all yeah. looking at his monitor, and you see some some kind of scary heart rhythm starting to go by. He was having pretty long runs of VTAC, that non-perfusing heart rhythm you've talked about before on your show. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it was happening more frequently, you know, and and we talked to the doctors, of course, and and the whole team is, they're always communicating. And this guy at that time was, you know, we knew he wasn't well. That's why he was in the intensive care unit. He was not intubated. He Um, I don't think he was on any medications to support his low blood pressure at that point. We just kind of knew that things were heading in a bad direction. Was he conscious? Yes. At that point, he was conscious and alert, but confused. Sure. But we we could see that this was happening. So we grabbed one of the doctors and said, you know, we should talk to this guy because at the same time, he was having more trouble with his breathing. Oxygen levels were starting to really tank and they were getting very low. And you could tell that we, we might need to intubate this patient at least. Mm-hmm. So we were like, well, can you go in and talk to the patient and see if, if that's what he would want? And we knew he was confused too. So we said, can you also talk to the family? And I, I wasn't part of the conversation. I don't know what was said, but the end of the story was they wanted everything done. So we knew that's that's sort of where the night was going. How old was he approximately? Was he an older gentleman? Somewhere between 60 and 70. He was not that old. I, I consider that young in the scheme of patients. Yeah, personally. certainly. But, but he did have a really widely metastatic disease. That's right. Um, that's very, right. very far advanced, which I think is the most significant thing to know. Yeah. And, you know, it, it kept happening. So then those non-perfusing rhythms kept going by and it happened another another time and I ran in because it wasn't it looked like it wasn't stopping this time. So I go in and he's he's no longer responsive. He's does not have a pulse. So, you know, it's the ICU, it's 
the code card is in there within less than a second. The pads are on and we've already shocked the patient before the doctor is even back in the room. And everyone's always right there and everyone's working together. So we were we were prepared, we were ready, and we, we started doing CPR. Um, and we're working on this man, I think probably towards an hour uh, with the whole code team in there. Very different setting than what you do in EMS. <laughs> Besides, you know, the couple people that you have in a in a truck versus what happens yeah. in a hospital, we have every every supply available, every person available. I mean, this man had every intervention done that you could do to to try and save him. Yeah. But it's just it's hard when you know, as the medical provider involved in the case, you you could see this coming for a few hours. You knew where I was going, and and I wonder what those conversations were like ahead of time. You know, if they had talked about what CPR meant or what intubation meant, or the fact that we could do this and he might not pull through uh, regardless, which is what ended up happening in the end. You know, after an hour of working on the patient, and you know he was projectile vomiting on everyone, and you know we're trying to stabilize him and get a heart rate back. And a couple times we did get a heart rate back, but then would lose it again. And, you know, everything that can happen during a code situation. Yeah. And unfortunately, at the end, there was nothing else that could be done. I don't think family members know necessarily how violent a cardiac arrest is. I think people see it on TV again and they go, oh, they're going to do some CPR. They're going to put a yank hour suction catheter in their throat because that's what it looks like on daytime TV or whatever. And sometimes that's what it is on TV. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is not, that's, that's not true, guys. It's not accurate. It's not accurate. a larger tube. It's a larger tube. It's very different tube. It's unpleasant, yes. <laughs> if it's not done right, you can lose teeth with the metal, the, the scope blade, the wrench scope blade. It's a very, very violent thing it to is. work a cardiac arrest. It's a very invasive thing. It's very violent. It's, it is absolutely life-saving, and it's an incredible feeling when you have put all of that work into somebody, and the team works really well, and you get pulses back. And I have worked cardiac arrests where they have been talking to us on the as we've walked into EDs. Mm-hmm. I've done it. It's, I mean, it's not me that did it. It was the team and the paramedics and uh, <laughs> One lady that was in a VTAC arrest, she dropped in front of us in the medics and we did CPR. And at the time we were given lidocaine. This is how far back this was. Lidocaine was in the ACLS protocols, which I'm, I'm really dating myself. And uh, she asked if we were rolling her into the morgue as she sat up as we were going into the emergency room. So wow. that's, it's incredible. Yeah. And we, we started laughing because we're like, oh my God, the fact that she was asking this from having been dead it's just it's insane, but it can work, but it's not appropriate for everybody. It's not. And there's a lot of studies out there about how effective it is. And, you know, I tried looking up some of the facts as compared to like in the field for EMS versus in the hospital, but I couldn't really find any good data. But definitely for, for the hospital setting, the survival rate after a cardiac arrest is around 40% after the event. Uh, but when you look at the survival rate after the full hospitalization, are these patients discharged from the hospital? You get down to around 15%. Well, and then there's also neurological status. There is, and that's a big thing too. What are they maintaining at? Right. What, are they the same person they were, or are they going to long-term care because they're 
they have dementia or something like that. Yeah, and they might no longer be able to eat or drink like they used to. They might need a feeding tube permanently, or they could have an artificial airway permanently in place called a tracheostomy. Yeah. A lot of times it's not the same type of life they did before. And, and don't get me wrong, like you said, there's also plenty of times where I've seen especially in younger patients, whether it's a trauma or just one medical diagnosis that caused something bad to happen. I have seen patients come back in and see us and say, I remember you taking care of me. And that's kind of like, wow, oh my goodness. Like you can really save somebody's life. And that's true too. Yeah. But I'm just talking more about people who have a lot of different medical diagnoses having a conversation. There's no right or wrong answer. Well, and that's why you need to have the conversation because it's our job to give you guidance of, am I this case of what are my chances here? Or am I the case of, am I the guy with malignant lung cancer with multiple metastases? Where do I fall in the spectrum? That's why you have a conversation with a provider. We should be telling you where you're at here and we should be giving you all of this information. It's not the patient and their family member. They're not the ones that should know this. No, they shouldn't. That's our job. This is what we do. This is what we see. So it's on us. The onus is on us to provide the appropriate guidance. And the family members, you know, and hopefully by listening to this, some people will know enough to ask, you know, where realistically, where are we at? But of course, you know, I have, it's kind of funny. Uh, last year, I had um, an older lady who was the mother of a physician and the physician was an OBGYN and she starts to get a little a little bit confused and he goes okay let's get her on hospice this is the end and i was like well h- hold on okay like she's still walking around right she might just have a uti like a urinary tract infection and the medical pragmatism he had prepared himself for this and he was like okay, when, when it's time, we're, we're going to do hospice. We're not going to keep people alive for longer than they should. And, and <laughs> but <Yep. laughs> this DNR is already signed and let's just get her to hospice. And I was like, well, okay. Yeah, that may be coming soon. I, but it's, it's hard to separate it when it's your family member. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I, I really appreciate where you're coming from, but we need to kind of separate son versus clinician. Okay. <laughs> I don't think, we're not let's not there. put her in the ground yet. <laughs> They're not going to qualify likely if they're still walking and talking and yeah. dementia. Um, but but she, I mean, she did end up going to hospice yeah. within a few weeks, yeah. but it wasn't we, you know, we did want to treat some infections first, but right. it was, <laughs> it was just really funny. The opposite end of the spectrum. We get many different spectrums of, of of things on there. That's for sure. It can be it can be challenging. So now that you work in hospice, you know, how do you like working in hospice? Tell people about hospice. What what is hospice? Hospice is wonderful. I love hospice. But I don't think anyone really knows what it is. They don't know what you do. No, they don't. And there's so many misconceptions about hospice and what it is and how it works and and when and how and how does this work. But, you know, hospice, the general line about hospice is it's meant for anybody who has a prognosis of, of less than six months. And that is very fluid. You know, there's a lot of other criteria that goes into it from the clinician point of view. But generally speaking, that's sort of the the rule of hospice. A lot of people think hospice means we only start hospice when it's somebody's last couple days of life. That's not true. A lot of people, you know, for example, I think of that same patient who had the metastatic cancer we did CPR on. What if he had decided to not do treatment? and to just focus on comfort. 
there's research studies out there that talk about people who decide to just focus on comfort and living their life and not not pursue aggressive treatment. And, and sometimes what the, the research is showing is you can live a longer time without many aggressive treatments than when you do pursue the treatments. And that being said, I'm not an oncologist or a cardiologist, so it's very case specific. So you should absolutely go to your specialty doctor about that. But yeah, something to think about. I'm just going to make a little bit of a disclaimer. We're not offering anybody medical advice here. We're just <laughs> we we're just kind of talking about some of the experiences that we've had. You know, obviously in every specific case, you should always talk with your own personal clinicians. Right. But sometimes, and I am certainly, certainly not someone that believes in picking only homeopathic or alternative medicines over chemotherapy or something when you have a very treatable cancer. Right. None of that black salve nonsense. Like, stop that. Like, essential oils are not going to cure your brain cancer. They may make you smell nice, some of them, but that's about it. This is not what we're talking about. We are very clearly talking about people that have terminal illnesses that are opting instead to withhold treatment because treatment may be having so many significant side effects that sometimes the side effects can put extra strain on their heart, their their lungs, their kidneys, that sometimes when you're withholding chemotherapy and treatment like that, they live a little bit longer because those systems are not as taxed by the medication. Exactly. And so we're not saying that they're curing. We're not saying that they're doing better. In very specific studies, sometimes it being more comfortable lets you live a little bit longer. So very case by case, talk to your clinician. Yeah. But hospice can be very important in that situation. <laughs> I just want to be very clear. Yes. Yeah. Only for, for terminal diagnoses. You know, this isn't something yeah, like you said, with a treatable type of breast cancer or, you know, something that isn't metastatic or hasn't spread to other parts of the body. This is someone, like you said, with a terminal illness. Oftentimes I've been told that their prognosis is less than six months and it might pursue some sort of palliative treatment. Um, and like you said, those treatments sometimes are still taxing on the body. And when you say palliative treatment, mm -hmm. so palliative treatment is... Symptom control. It's for symptom control. So um, it might be to decrease the size of a brain tumor or decrease the size of a mass in the body. Right. Not necessarily meant for a cure, but it's meant to try and help symptoms. Like if the brain tumor is causing seizures right. or making them confused, they try and decrease the brain tumor yep. in that regard. So sometimes they withhold palliative treatment. Yeah. And, and sometimes on the other side, palliative treatment is a good idea. It's really, that is something that your oncologist or, or specialty doctor should be figuring out. Um, but it is good to know that you, you should have these conversations with your doctor about what is best for you specifically. Yeah. So hospice works with people that have less than six months, typically. Yeah. And what do you do as a hospice nurse practitioner? So there's a lot of different roles as a hospice nurse practitioner. Specifically, mine is a little bit more unique. I work at a hospice inpatient facility and I treat patients. Um, so a hospice inpatient facility is meant for patients who need inpatient level of care, similar to like being inpatient in a hospital setting, except with a very different focus. Our focus is on comfort. So the patients who are coming to the facility where I work have pain that they can't get under control with the standard therapies you would use at home, or 
They might have nausea and vomiting that can't get under control with the standard therapies you would try for that. So I'm seeing patients who are symptomatic. We get some patients who do stay at the facility for a longer period of time and some patients that are there just for a short period of time and some people that return home once their symptoms are stable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of a variety. The more regular nurse practitioner role that you hear about in, in hospice and palliative care is home visits. See a lot of nurse practitioners in more of a palliative role before somebody starts hospice to talk about these options, which is a really, really great option because say say you are, you talk with your oncologist and they say, well, why don't we involve a, a palliative team in your case, uh, sometimes you'll get these palliative nurse practitioners who come out to the home and talk with you about what you want, what your goals are, how we can get your symptoms under better control. And, and that team of palliative providers works with your, whether it's oncologist, cardiologist, in terms of getting your symptoms under better control. So that can be a really helpful team member to add to your group before, before hospice. So just to clarify, people yeah. don't always know the difference between palliative care and hospice. So palliative care is not end-of-life care necessarily. It's comfort care, right? It's really about symptom management. Okay. So if you are like a lot of people who are part of the palliative care team, and you know, that's it's not what I do, but I will talk briefly about it. Yeah. <laughs> so they might be still getting treatment for cancer, for example. And they talk with their oncologist and there's some pain that's going on underlying that the oncologist might be having a harder time getting under control. So they might involve the palliative care team for recommendations on how to better manage those symptoms. And at the same time, the palliative care provider is going to be talking about what does this patient want? You know, is their goal to be at home most of the time? Do they want to pursue treatment? Um, If they do, you know, the palliative care team is very much so still involved in just being there as an extra support piece. Yeah. And palliative care can also uh, refer to like counseling for the family too and support groups. But of course, that's that's not what you do. So we'll, yeah. we'll go back to hospice. But it's, a, it's an important role and that's where you see a lot of nurse practitioners. So I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. And I think people get confused yeah. by hospice and palliative care. Oh, yeah. Palliative care sounds really scary because people think it's hospice, but it's not. Yeah. And they're really great. Such a tough connotation. People have a hard time understanding really what either of them are. And hospice... You know, it's it's about comfort. I really think it's about making sure you're comfortable. It is extremely individualized. With hospice, you have a team of nurses. You know, most people are, receive hospice care at home. And you have a team of nurses, like a nursing assistant. You have medical social worker. There's chaplains who can be very non-denominational as well who are involved. There's a lot of volunteers. I mean, there's just a lot of resources that come in when you're on hospice. And it's it's up to each patient what they want, who they want involved, how they want this to go. Hospice is about dying right, dying on your terms. You know, everyone's always about, I want to die at home. And hospice really lets you do that with the most comfort and control that you want to have. And I guess, so I guess I kind of want to talk about my experience with hospice personally, because you actually played a bit of a role uh, this past summer in my family members passing and your organization, and I'm not going to name the organization, but uh, James, my boyfriend, his father uh, is a very, was a, was a very awesome man and very stubborn 
and did not like doctors. <laughs> he was um he was the c- kind of guy that the last time he had gone to a doctor was when the Air Force forced him to in Vietnam and smoked at least a pack a day from when he was 12, which the nurses at the hospital when he got diagnosed with cancer were very shocked by. <laughs> so he was in his early 70s and he started to have some some symptoms early in the spring of tremors and weight loss and a little bit of confusion and trouble hearing. And I kind of knew being a nurse practitioner that it, it wasn't good uh, and knowing his history of smoking pretty early on, I had a suspicion that it was, that it was lung cancer with brain meds, just knowing him. And, and we lived down here in DC and they lived up in Massachusetts. And I will say this about, I'll, I'll just call him my father-in-law because that's what he basically was to me. Um, he didn't know what a nurse practitioner was until I met him. And then he was all about nurse practitioners. And when he, <laughs> when he went into the hospital, he, he told every single one of the staff that, oh, my daughter-in-law's a nurse practitioner. <laughs> so he was really cute about it. And so he ended up going into the hospital and they found multiple masses in his lungs and multiple large masses in his brain with smaller masses. So he had a adenocarcinoma, which is a very common non-small cell carcinoma that metastasizes. And it, I think it had met, met to his pancreas and bone as well, we think, because of how far along it was and how much he'd lost a lot of weight and there's, you know, the staging of it. Um, it was very advanced. They decided to not proceed with treatment or even palliative treatment. They, he just, he didn't like doctors. He wanted to just be at home. And so even before he got sick or even before we had a diagnosis, I knew you had worked in hospice and I called you up and I said, he's, he's sick and he's dying. And how do I get him into hospice? I know how I do it here. Uh, but he doesn't even have a primary care doctor. How can I get hospice orders? And you were awesome. You were like, well, he can go to the ER. He can do this. And sometimes sometimes you just need guidance even when you're a clinician. You need that hospice specialization. And so then he went to the hospital and they wrote orders for your hospice company. And being the stubborn guy also compounded by the fact that his brain was swelling and he had tumors in there, mm-hmm. which made him more confused and more stubborn. He would be like, nope, I don't want <laughs> I don't want people calling me. And your hospice organization was great. They would call me and be like, they don't answer the phone. And I'm like, yeah, they think it's the doctors calling them to get him to treatment. And so, But they were so wonderful and they, they kept persisting. And eventually we got him to get hospice to come in. Hospice worked really well in a very difficult situation. They they took over all of his meds. He didn't have a primary care there. We actually also got help from um, a veterans organization. He didn't really have much health insurance because he didn't believe he'd ever get sick. The hospital discharged him without a DNR. He had made it very clear that he wanted a DNR. They had had the conversation, but they didn't sign one. So we're trying to get him a primary care doctor to sign these orders to like manage the the meds to keep him comfortable. And I, I do want to give actually a shout out to the Veterans Northeast Outreach Center in Massachusetts because uh, John Ratka of their organization helped us get his DD-214, which is the document that shows your proof of service. And they got it to us within like eight hours. They found it and that proved that he had been in the Air Force and was able to get VA benefits and VA care. So that was actually really incredible. And the VA ended up working with your organization, which is a civilian private organization. But 
But anyways, it was really important for me as a family member to be able to have hospice and to be able to talk to the hospice nurses and say that, you know, he's getting confused or these are the symptoms and there's a lot of emotions going on. And hospice nurses were great. And I don't know, is there anything you want to say say about a family member? Well, I mean, they're out there, Um, but they're going through something is what I remember. And like literally every patient that I see, I think, what if this was my family member and what would I be feeling? You never know what the underlying story is. You don't know what their relationships were like before the terminal illness happened. Yeah. And I really try to understand what's what's going on. I ask a lot of really open-ended questions <laughs> to allow them to, to tell me what is going on if they're comfortable with it. And by asking them what they understand or what they want or what they're hoping for, you can find out a lot of information because sometimes they're really just not understanding what's going on at all. Yeah. You just have to educate them about what you're seeing and what you understand from the medical record. And sometimes that really gives them peace of mind. But a lot of times when people are, are struggling, I'm finding that there's some level of guilt or, or there's something else going on that is maybe not even related to what's happening with the patient. Yeah. So that's always yeah. the second side of the story. Yeah. So so when my father-in-law ended up passing, that day they kind of realized that he was deteriorating pretty quickly. And um, then the nurses came out. I mean, they were great. The nurses were able to go out there and say, this is how this is supposed to go. This is what you should be doing. This is how much medication you should be giving him. This is how often you should be giving it. You know, if he needs his orders changed, you were actually the nurse practitioner on call that night. It was really interesting to have the perspective of, of getting the calls from from the, the nurses as well as from the family. <laughs> it's not something that happens every day. <laughs> I broke all the rules. You're not supposed to be that terrible family member that calls <laughs> the nurse practitioner directly. You guys had the unusual challenge of what what's happening, trying to figure it out from, from a distance uh, when something can change quickly. It, it sounded to me like... You know, things had kind of been on track and then that day everything changed. Um, and, and when things started changing, they started changing quickly. That experience did give me some perspective on, you know, when I do get the call from the nurse, like, you know, family's having a hard time understanding, um, given this education. But, you know, when someone's dying um, and you're trying to educate their family on how to care for him, the bottom line is you got to assume they're not hearing most of what you're saying. Yeah. All they're thinking about is that they're about to lose this person that they've been with for who knows how long. So I just, I'm always happy to educate families with the same thing that I've talked about every day for weeks um, because you know, and, and our nurses know this too, that it might be the first time they hear it for real. Yeah. There's a lot to know and it's hard to take care of someone at home. And the truth is, it's an honor to be able to take care of someone in the home setting and to keep them at home for their wishes. Yeah. Like why we talk about goals. That's one of those things that we talk about with patients. If their goal is to stay home, but for some reason they wind up at the facility I'm at, we'll move mountains to try and get them back home. Yeah. And if that's not possible, we set up their home in the facility I'm at. People bring in pictures and decorations and family comes from far and wide to, to be with them. Um, so it's hospice. It's just such a different experience than than what I've seen in the hospital setting. And it can be it can be done so nicely. You know, death is always hard. It's never easy, but it can be done in a way that's with dignity and kindly and and peaceful. Yeah, professionally, half of my practice is geriatrics, and 
sometimes I go to nursing homes or assisted livings and so I once a week I do that. And mm-hmm. it's a nice change from, from being in the office. And so we have patients on hospice there on occasion and, and they progress. And so we're still their primary care provider and we go in and we check in on them and the hospice providers have taken over. But, you know, if they get a urinary tract infection while they're on hospice, you know, of course we're treating that or you know, we're still checking certain things to make sure that they're comfortable. You know, we want whatever disease process they have to take them. We don't want them to be uncomfortable with a urinary tract infection or pneumonia or something. And that is there's a lot of misconceptions about, you know, you start hospice and you're not going to get treated for any of those things. I mean, all the time I'm treating people for pneumonia, treating people for urinary tract infections. We'll treat high blood pressure. A lot of these things we still treat, you know, yeah, blood sugars that are out of control. We're still doing all of that. Um, that doesn't stop just because you're on hospice. Right. Your thyroid medication, you can continue. It's, it's We're not going to keep you on your cholesterol medication necessarily. Yeah, we'll work on that. But we, <laughs> you know, a lot of things, you know, blood pressure medications, a lot of them are for heart rate control too. Uh, so I think those are important to keep going because when you have a fast heart rate, that causes discomfort. Yeah. And, and people sometimes assume all of this gets stopped just because you're on hospice, but it, it doesn't. Um, and we work with each patient and their family to figure out. Yeah. We want you to be comfortable and managing your other conditions is making you comfortable. Right. So I get to see the hospice staff in these, especially these assisted livings, in, which is their home. And I remember last winter, there was one patient that was actively dying that was one of our primary care patients. And I went and saw her and this hospice volunteer was just sitting with her. And she goes, I'll just sit here until she goes. And she had a book and you know, the lady was cold and I and she seemed like she was a little bit uncomfortable. So as a provider, I, I could ask, you know, let's increase the morphine. You can give it a little bit early and let hospice know that I'd like them to change up their morphine schedule mm-hmm. to make her more comfortable because it wasn't really adequate for what she had. And, and they did that. And that was great because we will collaborate with them. And the hospice volunteer, I was just talking to her as we just sat kind of next to this lady's bed. And she had this bright pink butterfly blanket that she had. And we made sure she was really warm. And the volunteer says, my husband passed away you know 12 years ago and hospice was there for his death and they made him so comfortable I was so grateful that now I volunteer with hospice and I want to give that same comfort to other people and I was just like is someone cutting onions in here because this is so sweet (laughs) oh it's amazing a lot of people who get involved in hospice had personal experiences Um, I think honestly I think most people have been through something yeah, one of our nurses who recently started with us, she lost her father to a type of brain tumor. Like a couple of years later, started volunteering at our organization as a volunteer while she started nursing school. And then now she's a hospice nurse. So you just you hear those stories and it's nice because when people see it, you understand it. And it, it can be so hard to understand hospice or what it is. And sometimes the conversations sound harsh, mm. but that's not their purpose. Their purpose is just to understand what somebody wants. Yeah. A couple, like recently, we had this patient who was really, and this is in the hospice facility, he just was very severely depressed. I mean, he had a severe illness and it was challenging. But like you mentioned, we have a lot of volunteers. We also have a, a music therapist that works with our patients and she is wonderful. She sings, she plays instruments, and she's really good. <laughs> a bad music therapist would be really depressing. You never know, but no, she's, really, she's excellent. 
And she went in to see this guy just kind of on a whim. And it turned out, I mean, none of us knew this, that he was really talented. And she was singing with him and playing her instrument. And and the patient started harmonizing with her. Wow. And as this is happening, the patient's whole family is at the bedside. A deer starts coming out of the woods and is walking by the window. I mean, it it was like a straight from the movies type of moment that she was telling us about. (laughs) Things like that happen. And you're like, we're doing something right. Yeah. You know, creating this moment for the patient who was just, I mean, so depressed that he wasn't smiling anymore. And he was smiling during her visit. So it's just, yeah there's someone's cutting onions again. Um, The moments that really make it worth doing what you're doing. People tell me every day, I don't know how you do what you do. It must be so sad. But it's those type of moments where something so beautiful happens that you're able to support a patient and their family in the last months or or days of their life. It's it's nice. It's nice to be able to be there for people. Yeah. And I know in our experience, my father-in-law's death was pretty quick. And I mean, it happened over a couple of months. I mean, it was a summer that we found out that he was really sick and that then he passed. And the whole family said he was comfortable at the end. He was medicated and he was comfortable and he was at home. And that was how he wanted to pass. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't in a hospital. He wasn't hooked up to a bunch of lines and tubes. And he was dignified and he was a dignified man and he was comfortable. And he had seen his grandson that day, who was his life. That was everything that he had wanted and hospice was able to give him that. So it's it's really important and it's it's really an amazing job that you guys do. And I'm really grateful to have you guys as a resource for not only my family, but for all my patients' families too. Right. It is it is a good resource and it's, you know, it's something to I don't know where I was going with that. Um, <laughs> it's a great resource to have. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me on a Friday morning. I know your son's uh, first birthday is coming up and you've got like a lot of planning to do. It's okay. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> I think you just woke up. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, Anna, are there any like hospice charities or anything that's like near and dear to your heart that you want to shout out? No charities, but that's a good question. I think what you mentioned earlier, the five wishes form is a really good thing going into the holiday season. (laughs) Just talking about that with your family, those type of things. You're going to see everybody talk about these things just casually, you know. Wrap up a power of attorney form for everyone for Christmas. Yeah. Your proxy forms. In. That healthcare proxy is easy to fill out and you don't, it, it needs to just be signed by some witnesses. They can be anybody. Those are the things to have in line. Nothing else has to be decided. Just, just having the conversation and knowing who you want to take care of you. Yeah. That's a good point. Everyone's going to be around. So, all right. Well, again, please uh, give us some ratings on whatever app or platform you listen to the the podcast. It helps us get some visibility so I can get more cool guests on for you guys. If any of you listening are healthcare professionals, especially if you do something really unique, send me an email, send me a message on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Uh, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to hear what you do and hear what your stories are. My email is antidotespodcast at gmail.com. Instagram and Facebook are the same, Antidotes Podcast, or you can just search Antidotes Stories in Medicine on Facebook. There's a really awesome Facebook group that I'm trying to get going and you know, talk about all this stuff. If you have any questions, you can always ask me on the Facebook group. There's some really awesome 
uh, people there and some of the former guests that have been on are part of the Facebook group too. So I'm trying to get it going and people talk about things and and you can always tweet uh, the podcast at Antidotes Pod and my Twitter is Christine the NP. So I hope everyone has a great week. It was so nice to talk with you, Anna, and I will see you all next week. <laughs>